I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today, we're going to continue with part two of my interview with Bill Addison, the restaurant critic for the Los Angeles Times. The last couple of years at the LA Times has been kind of crazy. And like now it seems like you're like in a groove. And I love that for you. I feel like it's been a journey and I'm glad that you're enjoying it again, you know, because I really do believe you deserve this success because I've seen how hard you worked and how much you care. I mean, thank you, Jen. I appreciate you saying that. It's an important crossroads kind of moment. And even though I do feel like I've worked really hard to get where I am, I also recognize the inherent privileges I had to get there. And I have never been more cognizant of that. It breaks my heart in some ways that the culture at large and food media in particular is having this reckoning moment right now because journalism itself is so challenged. When we talk about the need for more Black restaurant critics, which I think is absolutely true, first of all, there are hardly any critic jobs left. I'm the only restaurant critic in Los Angeles now. That's That's crazy. I don't want that to be the case. You know, I think about I think about that moment in Atlanta, right? When, when you were writing about food, Christian was writing about food. I was writing about food. John Kessler, Besha, we were all in Atlanta. And it was this really energized moment because we all have these really different voices. We all considered ourselves and each other critics. There was respect. There was, you know, always a little, probably some backbiting because that's the nature of being competitive and wanting to be the best. But it kept us all energized. And I wish that now for BIPOC writers coming into this field, and I don't know if it's quite the same moment in, in journalism. I, mean, I don't think it is. I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't think, like, like you said, like there are just so few jobs. Like even when I was the restaurant critic, for Atlanta Magazine for a time, it ended up going, you know, to a freelance job when I took it. Before it used to be, like when you had it, it was like a position with a budget, but this was like on a case-by-case freelance thing. It's just, they don't exist. And then when you look at just like, you can't not mention influencers and social media and the way that coverage is evolving, it really has to be almost like the kind of thing you can watch in the back of a New York city cab for a few blocks. You know? <laughs> like, I mean, wow. that's amazing. I mean, people are people, you are a writer that entertains. I, hmm. w- I was always a writer who was like, so utilitarian, like, look, should you go or should you not? <laughs> like you took people on a journey, you know, how, how is that for you? How it is for me is that I'm looking around at everyone else and seeing how there, there is no, standard idea for what a restaurant critic is anymore, right? How Pete Wells does his job is different from how Soleil Ho does her job, is different from how Tejal Rao does her job, it's different from how I do my job. None of them are invalid, but they're part of, I think, the reaction as a restaurant critic is, it's, it's this wild moment wherein restaurant criticism is dying because most publications can't afford to give writers an expense account as part of the job. And also, there's so much happening in the culture that restaurant critics become culture critics, 
uh, restaurant critics become, you know, more cheerleaders in a pandemic moment. So, so what, what is even a restaurant critic anymore? I think it's become uh, an individualistic profession that has no, no one answer, no one way. And I think we're not going to see that until we're really through this roller coaster ride with the pandemic, because we need journalism to stabilize. We need to see, you know, what forms of media and social media keep rising and to what extent they apply ethics to mm-hmm. how they do their jobs and to what kind of means they want to communicate to their audience. Do we still need restaurant critics? Well, of course I'm a restaurant critic, so I'm going to say yes. Why, right? Why, why? Do you need why do you think? Yeah. I think that it has gotten to a place where there is so much constant, endless noise that there is still place for a person given a job not only to cut through the noise and the bullshit and to say, I recommend you go to this restaurant and here's why. But somebody who is thinking big umbrella about a place that a restaurant or restaurants have in the culture of a neighborhood, a city, a country, beyond. There is still a place for that kind of writing. Maybe people's attention spans aren't what they used to be. Um, And I think it's interesting that so, I mean, of course, during the pandemic, there's no stars, but giving stars has really fallen off. So there's no shortcut, right? There's no, readers just can't scroll down and say, oh, he gave that two out of four yet again. Okay, let's see what he or she gives next week. You have to read the damn thing, (laughs) which I like, but also makes me question how many people are actually reading. And still, I think it's important. And I think that there is a constancy, a trustworthiness, even if the trust is, I think this guy's opinions suck. And so I'm going to, do the opposite. Yeah, do the opposite. <laughs> exactly. Which is yes, yes. Circling back to what you said earlier about how there, you know, need to be more black food critics. How do those people get those positions if the positions don't exist? How do we get more black writers in those spaces? Like, how do we get their names mentioned in the rooms with these real estate developers so they're not excluded when a, like, for instance, a black neighborhood in Atlanta is gentrified and then there's no black businesses there. Yep. I think that we just keep at it. I think if anything, this moment has, has woken journalists up to the fact that they may not be gatekeepers, but they are lighthouses and who you shine a light on filters into investors and diners, public interest. So The emphasis should be more on who does not traditionally get the recognition that they deserve. And we keep our focus on that rather than the easy targets. I mean, like you've had a lot of homes and and the South, specifically Atlanta, has been one of your homes. I I think Atlanta has been one of your great loves. 
And for a while before, you know, while you were looking before you, you know, kind of met and fell in love with LA, (laughs) like Atlanta was your home base and you did so much for the culture here. When you look at Atlanta and the South, do you also think it's really weird that Black voices don't dominate the conversation more in the culinary space when it was like essentially an industry built on Black and brown bodies? Absolutely. I think if anything, the last year has taught me how ugly and entrenched racism is, even in ways that you can't, that were not obvious to me as a white person. I'll just say it. You know, I, I tried, you know, I don't know. Virtue signaling has always felt really icky to me. And so there's a real disparity in some ways between my, my public image or my public work and the, the people that I champion behind the scenes. I don't, I don't need recognition for that. And yet I can always do more. And I feel like, yeah, like why, you know, why at Atlanta Magazine, I'm just going to call it out, which is nothing that nobody at, at Atlanta Magazine in my time, like we asked ourselves, like, why do we have more black writers in our pages? Why do we have a black editor on staff? And and what's the answer to that? Like, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm just going to say pretty bluntly, I felt like there was this idea that we couldn't find anyone with enough experience. Okay, well, if you don't give somebody an, an opportunity how do they get the experience? You know, I, I think the San Francisco Chronicle hiring Soleil Ho as a, a restaurant critic who had had experience in food writing and in podcasting, but had never been a restaurant critic and has absolutely found Killed her, it. her voice, right? Like is, has debunked a myth, right? A myth that we start at, at all weeklies, which don't exist anymore. And we kind of work our way up through media and we get experience and that's how editors come to trust and notice us. And it's just like, mm, sorry, now you're going to just take a chance. You're going to nurture somebody. You're going to even better than nurturing them. You're just going to give them the space to be who they can be. And they're going to figure it out because they have the opportunity. That's it. That's the bottom line. If those jobs still exist if those in a couple jobs. of years, because right. know so right. it is a, a really depressing, I mean, the reality is depressing. And well, I, I mean, they're literally, my therapist says it is a pandemic wall. I have just hit my pandemic wall. I can, it's like all output. Well, yeah. since we have the same therapist, she says the same thing to me. <laughs> what comes yeah. up for you? What comes up for you? With that? But, um, but so, so something just like about well, something that she focuses on is body image. So let's talk about that now. But um, anyone that knows you intimately, we like to call you a cereal eater. You have <laughs> an incredible appetite, which, you know, doesn't surprise me given your you know, desire just to keep eating in restaurants. My relationship with food has changed so much over the past 10 years. And especially in the past two years, like, like Besha was talking about when she went and she ate all the foie in LA and how she felt so sick. And she was in the bathroom, like with her hands, like, I feel like that a lot with like heavy meat products and fat, but you tend to just have the strongest constitution of any critic that I know. Although Christian might, <laughs> Christian might contend. But like, what is your relationship like with food and your body as a restaurant critic, as a man, as a gay man? Uh, yeah, it's fraught, right? Because it's the nature of the business to, for, I don't think any food writer doesn't have, maybe I can think of one, one food writer that doesn't really fret about 
their physique, but she runs like five miles a day. So Hannah Raskin? Is it Hannah Raskin? Yeah, I knew it. Yeah. Look, um, I, I don't even know her and I knew it was Hannah Raskin. Oh, no. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Um, yeah, it's gone up and down for me over the years. I guess one insightful moment I'll say, all right, two things. First, I was blessed with an almost supernatural, like if we're getting back to the X-Men thing, like what's my superpower? It's metabolism. <laughs> metabolism is your superpower. So, yeah. It is your superpower. Yeah. My, my mother and my, my mother's mother, um, who just passed recently, but they're both tiny women and they have solid appetites. They're not like, you know, finicky little eaters. So I just inherited that. I'm forever grateful to them um, because I do eat a lot and I hardly hold back. Um, I have gone up and down um, in weight and what feels comfortable. Probably I am my most heavy right now that I've been in a lot of years. Partly that's just pandemic and kind of getting off any really regular exercise routine, to be honest. Partly it's because I'm so happy in my personal life that we, you know, I guess that tends to happen, right? Like, um, you look like you look like a hotter George Clooney right now. Oh, People can't see you, and they won't cause, <laughs> uh, because because yeah. anonymous. We'll talk yeah. to you next. My <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, both my partner and I have, like got a little softer belly than we did when we met a year and a half ago or so, and um, you know it's okay. I will say, interestingly, conversely that after I had a really tough breakup in 2016, that I was the thinnest I had been since starting as a restaurant critic. So it's not proportionate to your happiness. I met like an exceptionally hot guy that I was hanging out with for a little while in San Francisco. And so I wanted to like, kind of, you know, it's like, it's all that stuff, right? It's all, it's all bleeds in there. I, I still, you know, as a gay man approaching 50, like, how I look, how my body is changing gives me a lot of anxiety. And I don't have an easy answer for that. It just, I live with it and I, and it goes in cycles, like everything. I feel like if there's any theme to this conversation, it's that everything goes in cycles. I do think it's so interesting that your personal life is in the best place since I've known you and it's been such a tough year. <laughs> Right. <laughs> like I'm that it's just it is it's the way it goes i'm we take what the universe gives us when it gives it <laughs> exactly and you have a good therapist i mean yes yes which is really important really and good friends yes but i did want to ask you about anonymity as i just mentioned you know people are not going to see your face you are one of the few restaurant credits left in the world who doesn't have a picture out there. What's your relationship like to anonymity now at this point in your career? Is it still important? Yes, but maybe it's not important to me the way it was 20 years ago. I don't like getting fawned over in restaurants. I'm there to do my job. It makes me feel icky. It makes me feel really icky. And it makes me feel like I'm failing at my work. And I feel like other critics have kind of gotten past that. You know, Christian doesn't give a fuck. And I, I love that about her. And Christian, you know, is also very fearless about her opinions. And it's not that I am fearful of giving opinions, but I know that I'm a, the type of person who, if I know someone 
personally, then I have a hard time then publicly being like, you don't know how to cook fish, you know? So I have to keep a really firm wall. It's just because I know myself. So even if my anonymity goes out the window, which, which it does in some, you know, it's the same talk about cycles. It's the same in every city that I've, I've lived in. I'm at a place now, I'm two and a half years into this job. The people that want to know who I am as a restaurant critic know who I am. There are secret pictures of me. They have them. They don't exist online, but they have them. You know, I walk into a Nancy Silverton restaurant. They know who I am. I know that. And so I have to contend with it. At least you're being and, transparent. Yeah. But again, part of the, the pleasure of working in Los Angeles is that there are so many types of restaurants. The most people are like working so hard that they don't have time to think about, you know, who the one single remaining restaurant critic in Los Angeles is and what he looks like. They're just <laughs> trying to make a living. And that's great that I can be, you know, can just go in, experience it, write about it as best I can. But oh God, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to be, you know, I also, I know that my, you know, sorry bosses, if you're listening to this, I know my bosses, you know, would love for me not to be anonymous because they want me to participate in events. And God, that just, it goes against everything that I know as a, as a restaurant critic. I just don't want to be a public figure. Mm-hmm. Again, I can't tell you that if we're having this conversation next year, that something is not going to shift it where they have, would have shifted where they say, sorry, man, like you're doing events now. You know, if you want to wear like a mask, uh, you know, that covers your entire face, fine. Mm-hmm. But I, ugh. I mean, I used to be anonymous and now I'm not because just my work has changed and I've, it's interesting because people recognize me when I'm out now and they'll be like, hey, at the farmer's market, I just really love your work. And like there was a little pleasure in being hidden, but then it's also really cool on the positive side because I get to like talk to chefs and do these podcasts mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know, and that was always the part of being a critic that sucked that you had so much passion in common with these people and in this industry that you're covering and, and you're not even allowed to like have a drink, you know, yep. which we, t- we take seriously because there is a code of ethics, but for me, it's different. So right. for you, it might be. it's true. Right. Even when I interview chefs on the phone, I have the most in common with them. This is what I think about all day. This is what they think about all day. It's very satisfying to meet them where they are. So I do look forward to that day when I can interact with chefs a little more freely. Mm -hmm. I just can't do it yet. And that's cool. I love that you and Besher are still preserving that. I mean, somebody has to. I mean, I'm not there. But I do love that you also, I think it's important too. I think people who give up their anonymity pretty uniformly talk about the, the more satisfying relationships with readers. Uh, with with people who follow your work. And I think that's really important because this is about service journalism as well. No matter how you approach your your job, there is an aspect of service journalism Mm -hmm. at the foundation of it. So it feels good to be of service. And so what is next for you? Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Where can people find your work? Is there a piece that's coming up you're particularly proud of? 
<laughs> I mean, um, the interesting answer to that question is I'm just now getting back into the rhythm of what it means to be a restaurant critic. So, my God, I actually say, like, it's really cheap to subscribe to the Los Angeles Times. So please subscribe and see what you think. And if you hate it, unsubscribe. But um, I'm more of an Instagram guy than a Twitter guy. Twitter just gives me anxiety these days. Sorry, Twitter. So we all call it a hell site. All of those that frequent it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hell site, but we go because it's the fastest news. Right. So in, in that aspect of it, I respect, I also respect that it gives voice to people who don't otherwise have a voice because I have the privilege of having a voice through a publication. Then I feel okay about focusing my energies on Instagram, which is where you can find me most easily, Bill underscore Addison. But you've seen a lot of really interesting things happen in the past year, like Condé Nast (laughs) imploding because of a Twitter user who was like, hey, did you happen to see this photo? And I mean, it was, it's, it's a very interesting place, Twitter, but it has its perils and it stresses me out so much. Like I'm, I feel like there's a lot of people shouting to be heard, but there are a lot of really good voices. So you just have to be willing like a, you know, sale rack at Lowman's RIP willing to, <laughs> to sort through to find the gems. And I honor that Twitter space too, because that is where a lot of the hardest conversations, as you say, that's where they originate. That's where change is coming from. I just, I'm not sure that it's my moment to be that voice of change. So it feels better for me to kind of focus my energies where I'm, I feel most effective. And, and I don't know if that always translates, you know, there's, there, there are so many assumptions made um, about people. Again, I guess the weird thing, Jen, is that I just still feel like I'm hustling constantly, right? Like, I think people might look at my career or my place and see me in a certain way. I can't even really articulate what that way is, but I guess it's a place of privilege, right? And I glamour. I mean, it's a, it's a, I mean, like Besh and I talked about this. People are like, she was like dying from the flu in an Atlanta hospital. And this nurse came in and she's like, oh, so you're a restaurant critic. How do I do that? Because they think it's this wonderful thing, but you go broke. I mean, I remember you were supplementing your eating like with like 40% of your, I mean, like it was nuts, you know, it's not as glamorous as people think. No, but you kind of do whatever you have to do to keep doing it. I mean, that's the crazy thing, right? Like once you start being a restaurant critic and you really like get into it, I think the thing, even in this time of continuing crisis, I really still want to be a restaurant critic. As earnest and cheesy almost as that sounds, I, I, I don't feel like I've gotten to really dig into the job the way I want to in Los Angeles. Only now, even, even in the middle of all this, am I starting to feel like I can maybe do the job I always wanted to do here. And I don't see myself being a restaurant critic, you know, for the rest of my life. This is probably my last stop, but I can't tell you what's next. I don't know. All I see is the opportunity that I have here that I'm grateful for, that I hope gives something to people that contributes in some way, in a way that I'm, I'm, I have a hard time kind of parsing myself. 
but I'm going to stick with it for a little while longer. And I also don't think you've been able to do the job of being a critic when your personal life has been in order and you have a home. Because like you said, you were on the road for so long. Like not only was your relationship imploding, but you were like, you know, living out of your suitcase for a year or so. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, I mean, I sold my house and I just sort of quietly left Atlanta, which I guess I regret. You know, I'd always imagined that I would have, you know, sort of some sort of going away thing or kind of a formal goodbye to the city where I got my start as a restaurant critic. Um, So gave me opportunities, taught me so much, you know, the the community of friends I had there, I loved so much that I wanted to circle back after living in other cities. So I haven't been back to Atlanta since I moved to Los Angeles. Again, that's- really? Yeah. Again, that's partly because of the pandemic, but it's wild. It's wild to just, it's disorienting almost. I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that I left this place that I called home for so long without really saying goodbye to everyone that I love there. I mean, so. you're such a Southern boy, you know, like to me, and sorry, Southern man, since you're going to be turning 50, <laughs> then you could finally be a man at 50. But, uh, but I mean, you are, the South is like, even though people do technically consider Maryland part of the South, you are very Southern in the way you like to eat and the way you like to live. I mean, you and I have driven on some crazy country roads and eaten at gas stations and driving through Mississippi. I mean, like you, and you know it all. It's fascinating. It's fascinating how much knowledge you have about the South. And holding the complexities of it. I think that's the most important thing to anybody who writes about South and its culture right now, right? It's deeper and deeper and deeper than we can imagine. And, you know, kind of returning to that same thought, we need to give voice to the people who can tell those stories, you know, which was why it was such a pleasure to um, see Steven Satterfield host High on the Hog. Like what? Renewed for a second season. Yes. Yay. What a joyful thing that was to see a friend be able to tell narratives like that and to know that there's more to tell and that, Netflix, you know, which is, uh, it seems like an an entity that's happy to just give shows one season and move on, saw rightly the value in giving it at least another season. That's just one one small example. I feel like Stevens Whetstone Media, you know, is is an example of another form of media that we should all be supporting as much as we can and I know needs our support. So, yeah, it's things like that. I feel like in a kind of twisted way, because the South is a twisted place in all its beauty. Beautifully twisted. Beautifully twisted. But it taught me to lean into the complexities too. You can't not lean into the complexities or you're just going to sort of not be the person that you could be in society or you're just going to stagnate. And that's not where it's at. Like something I say is like my anxiety make because I'm so such a highly sensitive person, empathetic, makes me better able to do my job when I eat food because I taste it and I feel it. So one question I like to ask people is, you know, if you had to choose your last meal on earth or if you had to be in some personal 
you know, hell where you're eating the same food over and over again and the only thing that you will never tire of, what would it be? Well, right at this moment in my life, it's a toss-up between, yeah, I'll just say that if I had one meal, it would probably be to eat steamed crabs in the summer, late summer, when the crabs are fattest and full of meat with thick tomatoes, sliced salt and pepper, buttered corn, peach crisp for dessert. I think I could shove off after that. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Bill, for your time. I know you're so busy and it's always lovely to catch up with you. I love that you're doing this podcast, Jen. Thanks for having me. Well, that's this week's episode. Thanks for listening and thanks to Bill for joining me. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast in whatever app you use because it helps other people find me. And if you want to find me, you can follow me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds on Instagram and Twitter. Next week, I'm joined by Chef Asha Gomez. Asha is an accomplished chef with James Beard nominations and a New York Times spread under her belt. She's been featured on numerous shows like Ugly Delicious with David Chang and also has two cookbooks out. The most recent one being I Cook in Color, where she documents her interpretation of dishes from around the world. Again, we're back on Wednesday, and I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network.